0: So again, we'll be looking at Ruth, Ruth chapter 4 this morning. Once you reach the age of about two years old, you realize that life doesn't go the way you expect it to go. It doesn't get any easier, does it? It's hard. Um, Sometimes these disappointments are rather trivial. You don't get the toy you want on your birthday. Um, Or the toy you really wanted breaks after two weeks of using it. But other times, and many times, disappointments become uh, quite serious. Um, you know, the, the girl that you want to ask, or you asked to marry you, you, you thought she'd say yes, says no. Um, the husband you thought you knew turns out to have living a secret life of sin. A child that you look forward to So growing up and seeing them grow old. Dies an early death. Your doctor tells you that you have cancer. An accident. Turns your. Ruins your health and your career. Forever changing your life. A son or a daughter. Who you spent 20 years investing your life in. Rejects you. And the God you love. Life is full of disappointments. Life does not go the way that you expected it, as you thought it would. If any of these descriptions come close to striking home for you, know that the book of Ruth is serves like a balm for your soul. To, to comfort you. It's that to help you realize. The the providence of God, the sovereignty of God and the comfort of God and the care of God in your life. I mean, just think about Naomi. We started with her several weeks ago in chapter one, happily married. She's got two sons and then famine strikes. They don't have food. So her husband makes a decision to move to the fields of Moab to find bread. And things seem relatively calm for her, but then her husband dies, and before she can really even be somewhat solaced in that, she she well she is solaced in that, but but her, you know she at least she has her her two sons that are with her, and her two sons marry Moabite women and. When there's a, that that might have not been Naomi's, probably wasn't Naomi's plan for her sons to marry Moabite women, but they were living in Moab and they were a marriageable age and, and they married. And they married well, if you notice that from the text. Those two boys married well. Naomi commends those women for being great wives. And with, with marriage comes the expectation that there'll be children. So Naomi, although she's sad, Devastated by her husband's death and doesn't have the protector and provider that she had in him, she sees hope. There's her; son. she has her sons, and there's there's a hope or a glimmer of hope that there's going to be progeny, someone who lives beyond them that can help care for her and provide for her. although her husband's not there, but but then tragedy strikes. Both of her sons die in rapid fire succession, only like within five verses. Naomi's life is like devastated so she loses her son she loses the hope of of grandchildren totally wiped out her family line is effectively dead um she's too old to marry and have more children so she just sees the hand of god as being heavy against her um she hears that Yahweh has visited his people to provide bread in Bethlehem. And so she figures that a, a, a widow, a childless widow, would be better off in Bethlehem than in Moab. And so she makes the trek back. Two daughter-in-laws seek to go with her. And you know the story, only one goes, Ruth, who refuses to abandon Naomi, who dedicates herself to Naomi. But Naomi's so brokenhearted, she doesn't see the gift that That Ruth is to her at this time. She's just totally devastated. Her life. Did not turn out. As she expected it. At all. But this morning. We want to focus on Ruth 4. Not Ruth 1. But unless you understand Ruth 1. You won't understand. Ruth chapter 4. Naomi thought God's hand was. Heavy against her. And we can understand why she would think that. If you've gone through some of the difficult circumstances I mentioned in the beginning, or anything like what Naomi went through, you you know that. Like, is, is God's hand against me with all of these things that are happening to me? But Yahweh did not abandon Naomi, nor was, Ni- nor was Yahweh really against Naomi. That's just Naomi's interpretation of the facts. Yahweh provided an excellent daughter-in-law in Ruth, took the initiative of finding um, food for them. Yahweh guided Ruth to the field of Boaz, a a kinsman. Yahweh provided Boaz to come visit that field on that very morning and to be uh, very kind towards Ruth, that he would even tell his, his workers, the men workers, to Not touch Ruth and don't harass her. Protect her. Uh, And he would even instruct them to pull out uh, from the sheaves, pull out grain for her to make her job of of gleaning that much easier. He would provide uh, food for her and serve her. That wasn't normal. We can read this and think, well, yeah, any, any decent guy would do that. No, this is the time of the judges. This is not normal. Yes, this is what the the law of God requires of a man, but it wasn't normal. This is the time, the dark times of the judges, so it's very abnormal. Uh, Yahweh provides for Ruth, and Yahweh provides for Naomi to find out that Boaz would be would be winnowing the barley at a certain on a certain night, and develops a plan for. Boaz and Ruth um, to, to meet so that Ruth could appeal to Boaz to be a redeemer. And the Lord allows that plan to come together. It's a risky plan. Look, we looked at that in weeks past. Uh, could have gone poorly for Boaz, for Ruth, but it didn't. The Lord allowed all those circumstances To line up exactly just right so that Ruth was able to carry out that plan. Things didn't go exactly like Naomi planned, but the Lord intervened and allowed Boaz to be very, uh, respond very positively. He, he wanted to redeem, uh, Ruth and wanted to, to fulfill that role as a kinsman redeemer. Yahweh protected Ruth that night and provided. And we saw last week that, and the week before, though there was a complication of this other redeemer. So, though there was a complication, things didn't turn out exactly like, like Boaz and and Ruth and even Naomi expected. The Lord intervened, so as to provide, kind of, cause this other redeemer, this this other uh, closer redeemer, cause his, him to kind of like move to the side, so that that Boaz could fulfill the role he wanted to fulfill and and that Ruth asked him to fulfill. So Yahweh caused Mr. So-and-so to back out, which gave Boaz um, the opportunity. And, and Yahweh gave him the desire, gave Boaz the desire to, to pay the price of redeeming Naomi's land and taking Ruth's hand. And that's where we left things last week, looking at the fact that, that Yahweh provided a redeemer, who is willing to pay the price of redemption. And we pause there a little bit in the story to talk about how that foreshadows the great son of David, Jesus Christ, who would be the Redeemer, who would pay the ultimate price for our sins. So Boaz is not necessarily a type of Christ, but he's certainly a foreshadowing. He represents who Christ is. Christ willing to pay the price for our sins to redeem us, to deliver us from our sins I mean, that's 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 the wonderful just tribute to the handiwork of God because the human author of Ruth had no way of knowing that this would um, so closely foreshadow the Messiah Jesus Christ and his redeeming us from our sins but but the Father did Yahweh did, so as we reflect upon Ruth. Four. We want to read it and, and go back to the story and continue to see God's work, God's care amongst his people and for his people through through Ruth, chapter four. So let's just read that uh, together and we'll kind of pick up in, in where we left off. But I want to read the whole chapter so we get can keep the whole picture in view. Now, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the the, the kinsman redeemer of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, my fellow, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Then he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the fields of Moab, has to sell the portion of the field which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to uncover this matter in your hearing, saying, acquire it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if no one redeems it, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day that you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the one who had died, in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance. So the kinsman redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the right of redemption and the exchange of land to establish any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the matter of attestation in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, acquire this for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have acquired all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to, to Kilion and Mahlon from the hand of Naomi. And also I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Mahlon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance, so that the name of the one who had died will not be cut off from his brothers or from the gate of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh grant the woman who is coming into your home to be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and so you shall achieve excellence in Ephrathah and shall proclaim your name in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the seed which Yahweh will grant you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and Yahweh granted her conception, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is Yahweh, who has not left you without a kinsman-redeemer today, and may his name be proclaimed in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of your soul and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and put him on her bosom, he, and became his nurse. The women, the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron, and Hezron became the father of Ram, and Ram became the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab became the father of Nashon, and Nashon became the father of Salma, and Salmon became the father of Boaz, and Boaz became the father of Obed. And Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse became the father of David. Now this morning we want to to jump back into the text to understand the, how the Lord works in the lives of His people, particularly in Ruth and and Boaz. So when we left the story last week, Boaz had negotiated with this with the other kinsman redeemer to help him see that that. Ruth was part of the deal of redemption, and that other redeemer didn't want any part of the deal. He wanted the land, but he didn't want Ruth, and he didn't want, primarily he didn't want children. Because if there was a child of the union, then that child would inherit the land. In other words, the man would pay the price of redemption but not receive benefit from it because the land would go to that child, would inherit. that child would inherit the land. But Boaz was willing to, to pay that price. So Boaz gets the girl and we all, with with the other readers, sigh. Nice relief of sigh. Whew, that's the way it's supposed to turn out. Right? That's You want to shout, you know, quiet shout for, for joy or say amen. Boaz, who's the righteous man, gets the girl that he loves. And that's sort of how the people of Bethlehem responded as well. That kind of natural response, and and we see that beginning of verse verse eleven, and all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, "We are witnesses." They just jump right on in. You know, Boaz is asking them to be a witness of the transaction of redemption, and and he says, "You are witnesses," and they just say, "Amen." We're right there. Now, it's kind of interesting that Boaz. Remember, this is early in the morning. The Mister So and So just happened to be coming by, and Boaz grabs him and. Says, come here, let's let's talk. Sit down, let's have a talk. And that's kind of a formality of a way to, to show that it's like a it's a legal setting right there at the gate. And we're told that he lassos some elders, 10, ten of the elders of the town, that means the older men, to come be witnesses. So he've got them in there as well. But then in verse 9, it says and the people. But then Boaz said to the elders and the people, What's going on? Well, the people figure out people that are going in and out of the fields that are passing the great gate are are figuring out man there's something going there's something important happening here and a crowd begins to gather so it's no longer just the 10 witnesses you you've got this crowd that these people that are just like witnessing what's going on because boaz is somebody prominent in the town you know and boaz is serving as a, a redeemer and people wanted to wanted to witness this so notice notice these witnesses. In, in, in fact, in the beginning, it's the elders. In verse 9, it says the elders and the people. But then in verse 11, it kind of reverses and says, and the people who are in the gate and the elders, it's like the people are, are now just, they weren't asked to be witnesses, but they're the ones that are saying, yes, we'll be witnesses. It's almost like they're taking the lead even, even before the official witnesses. They're just rejoicing. They're, they are hap- happy for what is going on? They they play a prominent role in what happens next. This this prayer that they offer, and so notice the action of the witnesses. They affirm the legal transaction, but that's not all. They utter a prayer. They utter, utter a prayer for Ruth. They utter a prayer for for Boaz. They're so happy that Boaz is fulfilled fulfilled. Not the law of Yahweh that that Boaz was required to do this, but but Boaz fulfilled the spirit of the law of what should happen of of God's provision for a widow and even for Naomi, being being provided and taken care of. They're so happy that Boaz has taken taken Ruth under his wing as his wife to to and to care for Naomi, and they're also elated that he is he has said he will raise up a son. For the dead. The, the name of the deceased uh, will not perish. And so they, they pray for that to act that for Boaz's desire to actually come about. Now notice what the how the people pray. The people and the elders pray. The, first they pray for Ruth to be productive. You can call it fruitful. They pray for Ruth to be productive, be fruitful. And notice the kind of the introductory formula for the prayer, may Yahweh. So they're talking to Boaz, but when they appeal like this, all throughout Ruth, may Yahweh do this, even though it's dialogue, it's speech, it's representative of their prayer uh, and their dependence upon God. So it's a formula for prayer, and it's used extensively in Ruth. So their prayer is for Boaz's new new wife. Notice how they word this. We are witnesses. They said, may Yahweh grant the woman who's coming into your home to be like Leah, like Rachel and Leah. Just pause there a minute. Why don't they name Ruth? They could just say Ruth. Ruth the Molybdus. Why do they word it this way? Well, they're wording it this way in order to emphasize what where their prayer is going. Right? She is a woman. She is a young woman going to be married. Right? And normally, not all the time, as you know from, from Ruth's earlier marriage, but normally there are children. And so they're, they're just saying, may this woman who is Coming into your house, be like Rachel and Leah. And that's why. Now, what about Rachel and Leah? Now, Now, here, Rachel and Leah are attributed of building the house of Israel. Let's just kind of unpack this just a little bit. So, they're comparing. Their prayer is that this woman coming into Boaz's house, we know as Ruth, would be productive like Rachel and like Leah. What do we know about Rachel and Leah? They're married to Jacob. They're Jacob's wives, and it's interesting that the two servant women, um, Leah and Rachel's servant women, who end up being wives of Jacob as well, aren't mentioned here at all, but, but Rachel and Leah represent um, the the two founding women of the nation of Israel. So between Rachel and Leah and the servant women who had also become Jacob's wives, right, those women produced uh, sons. And, and in fact, you can read about all this. We won't take time to do it. But in Genesis 29 and 30, there are 11 sons born and one daughter. Now, there could have been other daughters. So just in those two chapters, it's like a nursery, right? And and the author is, is kind of like telescoping. There's a lot of time. These sons are spread out. I mean, you know how long it takes to, you know, birth and, and raise another one and then have another son and all that. And then there's periods of time where they're, Where they're like not having children and that's when they get their their servant women involved as as surrogate mothers um, and all that kind of yucky stuff goes on. But but the point of the chapter is there's fruit, there's fruit of the womb, there's children, 11 sons, one daughter, two chapters of the Bible. That's all it's covered. So it's there's a fruitfulness there and, in a sense it is it is the way in which God brought about fruitfulness, a promise uh you could say even going back as far as to abraham it's part of the the fruitfulness god of God superintended that, not that he desired for these women to do this he said God superintended it to bring about this nation of Israel, building the house of of Israel so um the Bethlehemites who were prey knew that these two women helped build the house of Israel, helped build the nation of Israel. That all all the people of Bethlehem came from Rachel or Leah, or or their you know two servant women who also became wives. All came from Jacob. It's interesting that that Ruth is kind of written from almost a woman's point of view. It's not emphasizing Jacob's role. It's not emphasizing the man's role. It's emphasizing the woman's role in this. That that attributing the growth of the nation to the women's role. Um, Obviously, without a woman, there are no children. So it's just emphasizing uh, their part in that. So they pray for productivity. They pray for a child from the union of Ruth and Boaz. But that's not all they pray. Um, They also pray for Boaz. You see us at the the end of verse uh, 11. He says, and so you shall achieve excellence in Ephrathah, and shall proclaim your name in Bethlehem. Those two last phrases are are uh, one are parallel, not exa- saying the exact same thing, but one is building on the other. Uh, that's how Hebrew poetry works. That po- that portion is is similar. It's not poetic, in this, but it is uh, built on Hebrew structures of thought, and they're, they're parallel with one another. So they pray for Boaz. Really, their prayer is that he would have prominence. That he would have prominence. Now, let me just pause there a minute. Remember that we last week when we looked at the first part of chapter 4, in verse 1, we see that the other kinsman redeemer is not named. Uh, Some translations call him my fellow, uh, we call him Mr. So-and-so. He's not named. That ties into what we're learning now. These people are praying for Boaz to have prominence and that his name would be remembered. Mr. So-and-so, who was so concerned about his inheritance that he couldn't pay the price of redemption, is completely forgotten in history. No one knows who he is. God knows. And certainly Boaz and Ruth knew who he were. But by the time Ruth is written, his name is all forgotten. Whose name do we remember? It's Boaz, the one who paid the price of redemption. His name is remembered. So, this is what they're praying. They they couldn't have known that at the time, but this is what they were praying for, for Boaz to have prominence. Um, The word excellent that is used there, you shall achieve excellence, that's the same word that we've seen before. In Ruth, we've seen it actually two times. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, Boaz is called a mighty man of excellence. And in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, Ruth is called a woman of excellence. And that's the same word, remember, that's used in Proverbs 31 to speak about the the, the woman of excellence, the wife of excellence. The same woman, same term. Um, it's a very rich term. And excellence is a good way to, to translate that. It's a prayer for Boaz to be great in competency in everything that he does. That's what that that's a prayer for. Um, so think, if you want to understand how they're praying, just think similar to like Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, which said, trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. So it's it's like Boaz is seeking to honor God in everything, and, and they're just asking for God to, to make everything that He does work out well. You know, a big harvest. Uh, business successful, and a family that's fruitful. So they're they're saying, may you achieve excellence in Ephrathah. Uh, that term is used. It's it. Some would say that it's a it's a synonym for Bethlehem. It's an old term for Bethlehem, or it's a part of Bethlehem. Uh, it, it represents a, a small family clan. But it's significant that Ephrathah is mentioned. It's mentioned several times in the book of Ruth. And that's significant because of what we know is coming later. Micah 5.2 specifically calls out the Messiah's birthplace of not just Bethlehem, but Bethlehem Ephrathah. So very specific details given that were fulfilled literally in Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, that the author of Ruth, uh, Probably did not have access to Micah 5.2. I didn't do a chronology of when it was written. Actually, we don't know when Ruth was written. That's the difficulty with that. We don't know exactly when Ruth was written. But most likely, he did not know about Micah 5.2 when he wrote that. Again, God's evidence of God's superintending hand in writing the scriptures. So they pray for prominence by praying that, that he will be achieve excellence, that his doing excellence is not just his character, but what he does. He will achieve excellence in Ephrathah and shall proclaim your name in Bethlehem. Now, there's not a, an object there. They may proclaim your name. Notice the, the Legacy Standard Bibles and probably NASB 95 uses your, your, the pronoun your is italicized. So it's not there. So that's an interpretive fact. So is he talking about proclaiming the name of Boaz? That's how Legacy Standard Version translates it. And that, that makes sense. But it could also be there say, may proclaim the name of the one who was being raised up, that, 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 that fruit of the womb that would yet come and, and live on in the Elimelech's family line, at least in a legal sense. But it, it seems best to take this as interpretive of the, the prayer for Boaz to be honored for doing what is, what is right. And then there's a third part of this that we see in verse 12. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the seed which Yahweh will grant you by this young woman. Again, they don't name Ruth. They're emphasizing her role as a woman, as a wife, in bearing children. So they pray for Boaz's house to be like Perez's house. Now, a house, they're not, understand when they talk about house, they're not talking about the structure you guys are going to go home to this afternoon, uh, take a nap in or you know, sleep in or anything like that. A house is referring to here as a metaphor for a family, progeny. Right? Um, so they're praying that his house would be like the house of Perez. Now, why Perez? Why Perez? Well, who is Perez? Uh, Tamar bore Perez to Judah. And again, the way this is worded emphasizes the woman's role. Tamar bore Perez to Judah. Now, who is Tamar? Well, Judah's firstborn son, Er, married Tamar. And we, we know about this from Genesis 38. We won't take the time to go look at all the details, but you can do that. It's interweaved with other, with other stories in there, and very important. But Judah's, Judah, um, was for, was, sorry, Judah's firstborn son uh, was Er, who married Tamar. But the scriptures are very clear that heir was was evil in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of Yahweh, and so Yahweh put him to death. So now Tamar is a widow, and in this case, levirate right marriage is enacted. So Tamar is given to heir's son. So Judah's second-born son now becomes the husband of Tamar, but he refuses to do the duty that Boaz willingly did, but he refused to do the duty of raising up a name for his brother. And so Lord determined that to be evil and also put him to death. So now Tamar is a widow twice. Judah has one more son. He's very young. And he tells Tamar, well, just wait, go live in your father's house and wait till he's grown up. When he's grown up, I'll give you, I'll give you that son. Well, that was a lie. Because Judah was afraid that his third son would also die, probably probably saw Damar, Tamar as you know the the wife of death. That um, was not true, but that's how he saw her, and he didn't provide for her. And Tamar sees this and decides to take matters into her own hands. Um, Judah's wife dies when he's shearing sheep. He goes and visits what he thinks is a prostitute. Turns out to be his daughter-in-law, but he doesn't know that at the time. So Tamar feigned being a prostitute, uh, convinced her father-in-law to sleep with her, and the the product of that union produced Perez and Zerah. So although God doesn't ordain the means, again, he superintended and overrode even even through sin and produced a seed that would continue on. It's very interesting that the author here picks out Paris. Now again, why why Paris? Well, we know if you trace Paris' sons, they tend to have a prominent role in the nation of Israel. So so that's one acceptable answer. Um, but I wanna I wanna hold off. I think there's a, a better answer uh when we go to look at the genealogy, I'm going to hold off and, and talk about that. But there is a reason why the author is pointing towards Perez and, and not towards Judah. You would expect Judah to be mentioned. Because Judah was one of the original tribes, you know, the sons of Jacob. And, and it was Judah that was prophesied that would be the leader, right, the, the, the leading tribe, not Perez. Now, Perez is the son of Judah, but anyway, it's, it's kind of a surprise. Ruth's book of surprises. Things happen you don't necessarily expect that would happen. That's a theme. Now, we've been talking about the prayers of the people. Were these prayers answered? Well, it kind of gave it away already because I couldn't explain it without talking about some of it. But yes, the people's prayer for Ruth was to have a baby and a son is born in, in Ruth 4.13. The people's prayer for Boaz to have prominence. We we know that. We're still talking about them thousands of years later. Was an answer, yes. Um, and the author answers it in his story as well, for those that didn't have the perspective that we have today. Uh, The the son that would come from them would be the father of Jesse, the father of David. And the genealogy at the end here places Boaz as as number seven in a ten-named genealogy. So we'll get to that in a moment, but it's significant that there's ten names, and it's significant that Boaz is listed as number seven. Place of place of honor, and we could also turn to the New Testament. You remember the genealogy of Jesus, both Matthew, Luke. Well, Boaz shows up in both those. So even the New Testament, they're still talking about Boaz. His name is prominent. His name is remembered. But it's kind of interesting that there's other prayers that are answered in this little book of of Ruth. Uh, Naomi's prayer for Ruth. In the beginning, chapter 1, verse 9. May Yahweh grant that you might find rest each in the house of her husband. She was it's her prayer for, for Orpah and for Ruth. We don't know what happened to Orpah. The story doesn't involve her anymore. She leaves and is gone. But for Ruth, we know that, that Naomi's prayer for her was answered. She did find rest in the house of her husband. Not in the way that Naomi thought it was going to happen, but it happened. Then there's prayer. Boaz's prayer for Ruth in chapter 2, verse 12. May Yahweh fully repay your work, and may your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. God answered that. Now, far differently than Boaz thought when he prayed that. He didn't know that God was going to use him to be the answer to the prayer, but he didn't. And then there's mere, I would even say, Ruth's mere wish to find favor in Boaz's eyes in chapter 2, verse 13. May I find favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken to the heart of your servant woman, though I am not like one of your servant women. Not, not directly a prayer, but it's, but it's her wish. And and not just her wish, but a wish that she would have depended upon Yahweh to do. And God brought that about. Boy, did, did Ruth ever find favor in Boaz's eyes. We know that turned out. And Naomi's prayer for Boaz, in chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, when she came back from the fields, she says, May he be blessed of Yahweh, who has not forsaken his loving kindness to the living and the dead. Blessed, full, to be happy. Or did that ever get answered in Boaz's life. And then there's Boaz's prayer for Ruth, in chapter 3, verse 10. he, He said, May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. For you have shown your last loving kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So he's calling upon God to bless Ruth, and, and we know that he did indeed do that. So seeing these things helps you to see a significant theme. Ruth helps you to see that God hears the prayers of his people. He answers their prayers, though not in a way he's. Yeah, a lot like our prayers, do you need to understand that God is always faithful to answer your prayers, but He reserves the right to answer them in a way that He knows best, which is often very different than what you expected. Do you pray regularly for god's help as these these saints did? Are you so quick? Not, not to say, oh, may God do this may God, in a frivolous way, but really just depend upon the Lord. Do you pray for one another in that way that God would bless the other person? And do you look for the answers? Yes, you may not expect how God's going to answer, but are you looking for the answer? Are you dependent upon Him? Are you reliant upon God? We should be. Ruth shows us the reality of God's working in his people's lives, answering their prayers. But that's not all. I also want us to see that Ruth helps us to see that God provides blessings for his people. Now, let's move into verses 13 and 14. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her. And Yahweh granted her conception. And she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, blessed is Yahweh who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer today, and may his name be proclaimed in Israel. Let's just stop there. Yahweh blesses his people through his divine providence. All throughout Ruth, there's like subtle, subtle workings of God. Again, to help us to realize that most of the time, God's working in ways that are hard to see. They are subtle. So subtle, sometimes it's hard to see. You've got to that i got to pause and reflect upon, you know, like, like Ruth would have had to do. Like, you know what? Looking back after she, you know, Boaz worked everything out and she became his wife. She's like, you know, and I didn't I didn't just happen into your field. Yahweh directed my steps. It's not stated that Yahweh directed the steps, but it's obvious from the text. But it's, it's a subtle obvious. So God often works through subtleties. They're actually quite beautiful. Um, think about Ruth's declaration of loyalty to Naomi. God wasn't directly involved, but he no doubt was involved for Ruth to really have a conversion and be so, so dedicated to, to Naomi. Think about Naomi's return to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Think about Ruth's gleaning and Boaz's field. Think about Boaz's kind response to provide and protect. Ruth and even for Naomi. Think about Naomi's crazy plan to provide Ruth rest, that is a husband. Think about Ruth's ability to enact the plan. How often do you come up with a plan even half as crazy as as Naomi's and you can't get anything to work out, but everything worked out. You have Boaz's acceptance of Ruth's proposal. You have Mr. So-and-so being unwilling to pay the price of redemption and step aside so Boaz can come in. I mean, they're just... There's just so many ways where God is working in subtle ways in Ruth, and often God works through these subtle but beautiful ways. Uh, I heard an illustration of from uh, Dale Ralph Davis in his teaching on this. He used this illustration. I'm going to rob it from him, um, but I told you that. So, but he's he's like, you know, some things are just better unstated. You know, like when a young man and young woman in college are beginning to, to get to know one another. They like spending time with one another. They enjoy, and every time the young man asks the young lady out to go do something together, she says yes. And they enjoy spending time together, and he's thinking, man, I really want to hold her hand. Now, is that something he's going to like? call a little meeting together with her? Now, I want to talk about something. I'm going to talk about, we need to make a decision whether we're going to hold hands or not. Right? Some people may have done that. I think you have a very conservative background where you know you can't even touch uh, one of hands, hands, um, especially in college. But assuming you didn't, what are you going to do? Well, they're, just, you know, they're going to spend more time together and they're going to be walking down the sidewalk or walking through the park together And they're gonna be walking a little closer together. And their hands are gonna like backs of the hands are gonna kind of like just kind of like glance off one another. And then it's gonna happen. They're just gonna kind of latch, right? And it's done. And they're both rejoicing in that, right? So, see, some things are better, better, subtle. Just work out in the providence of God. God does the same thing. But there are other times where a direct intervention is needed. And Ruth 4.13 is, is one of those. Where a husband and wife coming together didn't produce any offspring for Ruth earlier. Now, people debate whether that was an issue with her or an issue with her husband. Uh, we don't know. But I would lean towards saying there was an issue with Ruth. Because of the text here, it very specifically mentions that Yahweh granted her conception. It's only two times in Ruth where God is mentioned to directly do something. Chapter 1, he's talking about visiting his people in order to provide them bread. Direct action of God. And then in chapter 4, granting her conception. And God has a way of, of doing this. Like There's a there's a pattern in the, the history of Israel with key families, think Abraham, married to a woman who's barren. Barren for a long time. And it takes God's intervention to provide an offspring so that God's promise could be fulfilled for providing the Redeemer. So again, the author is drawing these, these parallels from Ruth, from the, from the book of Genesis, bringing them into Ruth for us to, to see that. There are times when Yahweh must intervene, and he will do that to carry out his promises. Remember, we're talking about not just any family. This is the family line that would produce David, which would, is a family line which would produce the Messiah. And we might think, well, if that one didn't work out, surely God could use another. But you don't understand. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God doesn't operate with a plan B. There's only plan A. And when plan A looks like it's about ready to crash and burn, God intervenes to keep plan A, plan A. That's how God works. Why does God intervene at some times and not another? That is a million dollar question you're going to have to ask God when you see him. Why does God choose to rescue one and not the other? That's just a a, a question that, that we must recognize in the secret counsel of God. You know, why is the story about Ruth and not Orpah? The secret counsel of God. So, you know, Naomi could have asked and must have asked, God, why didn't you intervene to save my husband? Or God, why didn't you intervene to save my sons? Or, or at least, God, why didn't you intervene to save one of my sons? At least one of them. Those are difficult questions. And those, those difficult, the difficulties of life uh, sometimes defy answers. We just have to trust God. So Ruth is appealing to you that God's got a plan. right? Hey? You trust His plan. You trust His sovereignty, even when it's painful for your life. Well, there's another truth I want us to see from Ruth, and that is that, that, that God's care for His people is marvelous. You see this in verse 14 and through 17. I'll try to step us through this in a time-expedient manner. The women said to Naomi, Blessed is Yahweh who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer today, and may His name be proclaimed in Israel. Speaking of the son that was born and mentioned in verse 13. And notice in verse 13, it telescopes us through time. She conceives and a son is born. Nine months. So he's telescoping us in the story through time. The women are, are really proclaiming, praising, blessing Yahweh. When when the scriptures say, we use the word blessed is Yahweh. We're talking about someone inferior to someone who is greater like We are inferior to God. We can't bless God. Because to bless somebody, it requires the person who has the blessing to be richer than the person that they're going to give that blessing to. We're not richer than God. We're not more powerful than God. He's the greatest. We can give nothing to Him except praise. When we talk about blessed be, it's really talking about praising. Praising God. So they are calling, praying, that the Lord would be praised. May the Lord be praised um, who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer today? And may his name be proclaimed in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of your soul and a sustainer of your old age. Who are they talking to? They're talking to to Ruth. No. They're talking to Boaz. No. Who are they talking to? Naomi. Naomi. There's an interesting curiosity with the Book of Ruth. Every chapter returns to focus on Naomi. See, you thought it was a book about Ruth. because it's the title, Ruth. But it's really a story about Naomi. Look, at the end of chapter 1, it's all focused on Naomi. You kind of expect that because she's going back to Bethlehem. But in chapter 2, in the fields, you have Ruth and Boaz and this dialogue. But at the end of it, it returns to focus on Naomi. Chapter 3, you have the threshing floor incident, and, and, and Ruth goes to the threshing floor, and you have Boaz and Ruth under this dialogue. But at the end of that, chapter 3, it goes back to Naomi. And she just tells Ruth, be patient, wait here. Boaz, take care of it. And now at the end of 4, you would expect to hear much about Ruth or much about even Boaz, or, uh, about, about their son. a son and that son has been born to him. Um, But the focus is on Naomi. What is this telling us? God hadn't lost concern for Naomi. God is concerned for Naomi. In chapter 1, she thought that God was against her. But reality is, God was for her all the time. God's concern for her was relentless. He didn't lose her out of his vision. He didn't stop caring for her. His care is relentless. Even though she went through difficult times, and that's what God takes us through at times, difficult times, but his concern for you is relentless. He may not do for you what he did for Naomi and Ruth. I'm not saying, I'm not making that case. What I'm saying is the picture, and the author is doing this intentionally, of God's care to see his people cared for. His, his, his focused he is so focused on caring for them, on caring for Naomi. And he's he has cared for her. And uh and and look at what um look at what is said about or to her. Blessed is Yahweh, who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer today. And and in your mind, in the story, you, you're kind of thinking, uh yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's Boaz. But if you keep reading, you realize they're not talking about Boaz. Pay attention to who they're talking about. Blessed is Yahweh who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer today. May his name be proclaimed in Israel. So again, if you just stop there, you could say, well, yeah, talking about Boaz. That's not who they're talking about. Continue reading. May he also be to you a restorer of your soul and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. There's something very significant going on there. Not just, not overlooking Ruth. But again, the story is about Naomi. Chapter 1, she's empty. She's bankrupt. She's bitter. Her family line is dead. Chapter 4 brings about the birth of a son. Who then makes her full? Who then is a guarantor that, that her family line will continue? So much so that look at what the look at the neighbor women say. Let's skip ahead um, to verse, verses sixteen and seventeen to show you how full Naomi is. Naomi took the child and put him on her bosom and became his nurse. Full acceptance. This isn't. This isn't. Some see this as like an adoption. This isn't an adoption. This is just a, a a grandmother loving loving a grandson like a son. That grandson is going to carry the name, the legal name of Elimelech. Now, it's interesting. Elimelech's line kind of dies away. You don't mention. It's not, You know, Boaz kind of replaces him. So God superintended and said, "Yeah, Boaz. I know that you wanted to raise up a name for Elimelech." And the inheritance, no doubt, legally, Elimelech's name lived on, and legally, all that land belonged to Elimelech and belonged, uh, to their son, Obed. But God superintended the scriptures and said, no, Boaz's name would be in, in the, in the lineage, not, not the legal name. The real father's name would be mentioned in the genealogy. And that, that's what's going on there. So the women are so, um, So excited! They say the neighbor woman gave him a name, saying the son has been born to Naomi. They gave him the name named him Obed. It's the only place in Scripture where someone other than the parents are naming the child. That doesn't mean that Boaz and Ruth weren't involved in this. It's just emphasizing the fact that 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 the women named him. That was their idea of naming him, of naming him this name, Obed. And we don't really know what his name means. It's could probably related to a term that means to to serve. Um, so the name of, of Obed isn't, the meaning of the name doesn't really have a major play in the story. It's who he, it's what he goes on to do. And notice, notice what they're wording. A son has been born to who? To him. Not Ruth. Not, no, that, they're, not they're not like hiding their eyes to the reality. They know Reality. You know, Boaz married Ruth and the son was born. Ruth was the one who bore the child. They they saw they saw her and saw the child born uh, from Ruth. But what it's significant that this child is going to, again, carry the family name, the lineage of the name. So it's like the son. It's like a son to her. Grandson biologically, but like a son in the sense of fulfilling God's promises and, and seeing God's goodness to her. She's Full, completely full by the end of the story. Empty to full. From no progeny to now progeny. From no hope to hope. And, and that's what the author is trying to help us to see. But there's something else. Hang in there. But Ruth also helps us, the book of Ruth also helps us to see how, how God brings about things through people's everyday, just normal lives. Bring them about and turn them and use them for his kingdom, the building up of his kingdom. Some scholars read up they read the last part of of Ruth, verses six they read verses sixteen and seventeen as kind of like the ending, and then this genealogy is a a later addition. But I want us to kind of see and make argument that, that the genealogy is very much a part of Ruth, very much a part of the original author's intention. To direct our focus on a, not on Ruth, not on Naomi per se, not on Boaz per se, not not to see that this is just a a family, a good family story, God rescuing a particular family, but He wants us to see this is bigger than the family. He wants us to see God superintending of that event and time from the past and to the future. The author is reaching back to Perez, and I'll return my question: Why Perez? Because he's a nobody that you wouldn't have expected. You wouldn't have picked him. He was a son of incest. You wouldn't have picked him, and neither would anybody else. And if you look at the, the name of names in this list, we don't really know much about these guys at all. Some of them are mentioned here or there, but we really don't know much about them. In a 10th genealogy listing, historically, the, the person at the end would receive the prominence. And that's what happens here. But all the people before him would be like kings listed. So in order to justify the legitimacy of that 10th king named, he would trace his genealogy to the kings who came before him. But David can't do that. Because those that came before him weren't kings. He was the start, really. You could say Saul was the start, but but not really. Saul was the people's choice. He was never God's choice. David was God's choice from the beginning to be king. He was the start of the kingly line. So he couldn't trace his genealogy back to anybody except nobody's. Think about David. Who expected David to be king? You read 1 Samuel and see nobody. Not even Samuel. Samuel had no idea. all these seven sons of Jesse, and they're looking at the ones that are really big, really strong, and weren't looking for the run to the group. the baby of the family. No one expected David to be king. Fast forward to the Messiah. Who expected that God would send a Messiah born of a woman? Nobody. You wouldn't come up with that plan. God did. The scribes and the Pharisees who are so wise in the scriptures could they could they foresee that? No, no. They 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 just blew them away that God would pick somebody like Jesus. It just just blew their mind. So the author is, I think, using this genealogy. To say, make this statement: David is God's choice; he's God's anointed to rule the throne. You may not like it, but that's whom God chose. And all of these can fall in the same line: a God's choice. Don't know much about them. They're really, you said, Mister, Mister, we don't know. We know their names and the genealogy is a linear genealogy. It's absolutely accurate, but it's not all filled in. Because there's about 900 years from the beginning to the end. So there's probably more than just 10, uh, you know, like 10 generations listed. So what the author is giving us is a true lineage just, just not complete, which that's how the New Testament, the Old Testament gives a genealogy. Is that, um, in, in biblical thinking, they don't have to give every single person that's involved in the genealogical line. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to show descent, to show the family line, to trace the family line, not to give every single person in that family line. But but all that, to step back from that and say that God uses the lives of his people to bring about things they can't even imagine. Naomi, Naomi couldn't imagine that God would use her family to bring about the rise of a godly king, David. I know he wasn't perfect. He got made massive issues and that's why there needed to be a greater David. Boaz had no idea. R- Ruth had no idea what God was doing that was larger than them. They couldn't see that from their, from their point of view. But that's what this genealogy provides us. It's the, the, greater, the greater view of what God is doing. The significance of that is that Ruth isn't just a family story. It, Ruth shows us that God uses common and complicated events of our lives even painful events of our lives to, to build His kingdom in ways that we just cannot fathom on this side of eternity. So what do you do? You trust Him. You trust Him with the, the, all the events of your life. The good and the painful. You're not. Your life is not going to look like Ruth's or Boaz's or Naomi's. God may not may choose not to bring uh, a particular redeemer into your circumstance and redeem you out of that trouble, but he will always be faithful. God is always faithful, 100% of the time. But he's not always predictable. Can you, can you hang on to that thought when you think of Ruth? God is always Faithful but He's not always predictable. He's going to provide answers. He's going to help you. He's going to answer prayers, but probably not in the way that you expected. Don't abandon God, for He has not abandoned you. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank You that You are a faithful God, that You are a God who is always faithful, 100% of the time. And Lord, we confess our own shortcomings that that, that we, we can't see that sometimes, especially when times are painful and hard. When our lives don't turn out the way that we thought, which is frequently, but sometimes that's the pain is so hard, is so intense. Lord God, it's hard for us to see your hand in that and to trust you And other people, Lord, here, whose lives have been touched by really hard things. And even now may be dealing with hard things. Lord, I just ask that you would work in their lives to help them to trust you. No matter the intensity of the pain. No matter the difficulty of the trial. That they will trust you. That they will just rest. That they will find their place of rest in you. They'll find their place of refuge in you. And trust you to do what is best. And trust you to do your work. And to have faith that you care about them and that you are at work in their lives and that you will answer their prayers. Help us, oh God. Help us to trust you To live our lives for you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.